You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Lock them out and bar the door. Lock them out forevermore. Nook and cranny, window, door. Seal them out forevermore. Curse, go back. Curse, go back. Back with double fear and flack. Curse, go back. Curse, go back. Back with double pain and lack. Silver arrow through the night. Silver arrow, take thy flight. Silver arrow, seek and find. Cursing heart and cursing mind. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary. Joining me, of course, Mr. Mike White. If she weighs the same as a duck, she's made of wood, and therefore, a witch. Our Shocktober coverage concludes this week with a look at the 1922 film by director Benjamin Christensen, Hexen. Film's an odd mashup of uh, what can only be described as a university slideshow lecture, a documentary featuring reenactments, probably one of the first of its kind, and also a horror film, kind of all rolled into one, and that's what makes Hexen such a singular film over 90 years later. So, Mike, when was the first time you got a chance to see Hexen, and what did you think? Yeah, I'm ashamed to say this, but the first time that I saw it was probably about two weeks ago in preparation for the show. It had been on my radar for a long time. But I just never sat down to watch it, so I'm very glad for this opportunity. As for me, I had first heard of it because the guys who did the Blair Witch Project named their company Hexen Films. And uh, I guess they had talked about using that name in reference to the Benjamin Christensen film. And then in 2002, Criterion Collection actually put it out on DVD. So I just snapped it up in 2002, and I've been carting this one around even though I uh, culled a lot of my uh, DVD collection over the years, this was one that I hung on to. It is an odd little film. It's probably one of the more unique silent films that I've seen. And um, it, it, it's got a interesting mash of things going for it, and that's why I enjoy it. It's got a really crazy vibe to it, too. I mean, it, it is shot so documentary-like, and being from such an early age of cinema it's like it really kind of gave me that like um flarity type feel where it's just like am i watching something that's real right now or is this not and just i gotta say the special effects and the makeup effects and just so much of it it was just really blew me away by how great this film looked and I was really impressed just by the storytelling methods, like some of the kind of, you know, little fantasy sequences that people would have, like uh, one of the early areas, we have a woman who's wanting a love potion uh, created and just having these little like vignettes in her head of like what could happen if this love potion were administered. And I was like, wow, this is really, really well put together. Yeah, and I think in a lot of ways it foretells things such as, uh, whether you like it or not, something like in America's Most Wanted or the use of reenactment in documentary and and things like that. I mean, I think uh, Christensen was way ahead of his time in terms of uh, this film. 
Well, yeah, in terms of so much, I mean, I know that stop motion had probably been happening already in cinema and all this, but just mixing all of these different uh, special effects that he had going on. And I know there's some forced perspectives. The devil looks really big in certain instances and there's just so much all put together in one film. And then, yeah, just some weird, like, tonal shifts as they go through like when i i watched the burroughs version first and then i watched the criterion edition or the 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 because i know they put the burroughs on the criterion but the the original version or as close to the originals we're going to get and i was just like well there's no way in hell that this slideshow part is actually part of the movie this is just a weird add-on somebody added later on only to find out yep yep that was there Okay. What I want to do is talk about the 1922 version first and then go to the interview and then we'll talk about the Burroughs version and kind of compare the two. And then maybe we can talk about sort of witches and film a little bit as well. So opening, the first shot you get is a nice big close-up of our director, Benjamin Christensen, looking right at you. And it says Benjamin Christensen is the director and writer of this film. And he spent two years between 1919 and 1921 researching in order to make this movie. So basically there's no doubt that when they talk about, you know, a film by this guy's putting his name on it, much like yeah. an author of a book. And I know that you know we are talking early days of cinema here. It's what 1922 you're saying. So we're we've had movies for a few years now. So I'm I'm not surprised at all by the level of sophistication of some of these things. We're, what, six years away from the first sound film, so we're in those early days, but there's definitely been a lot of advancement going on here. But this whole idea of a director owning a film, it has been around, but yeah, there's no doubt that this guy is the man when it comes to this, and he is very, like, so in your face when it comes to it. And then also that he is an actor in his own film I thought was uh, pretty ingenious as well. Yeah, and we'll talk about his uh, roles coming up. But he, in this opening, in the first 14 minutes of the film, is this slideshow that you talked about. And it's him sort of laying out the universe of what was sort of how people saw evil and how sort of devils and demons and witches and all of this stuff sort of came to be, along with also various creation myths of various um, antiquity. I was very much reminded of the opening of An American Astronaut, uh, or The American Astronaut, I should say, um, during this part and that whole, like, calming voiceover as it's telling us about these things and the very like well done animation of how the solar system is put together and i didn't realize that there was that layer of fire between the earth and the rest of the solar system so i guess you just learn something new every day yeah there's all that and one of the things that i really love in here is he's showing you these woodcuts these like hieronymus bosch um paintings um, various sort of pieces of antiquity. And then there's also this little mechanical of hell. Fire, smoke, and then there's these little puppets that are moving and they're like pushing people into like cauldrons and everything. It's a funny little animation. Yeah, and uh, those kind of old school uh, drawings and etchings and those things, those always just kind of creep me out. Um, and especially to see just the amount of detail that was put into them and everything. I mean, there's just something inherently creepy about the way that 
people in the past would see this kind of uh, demonology and cosmology. So I was really put into a mood with this opening, and then the music definitely helped out as well. It's interesting that you bring up Flaherty, because by the time we get to 14 and a half minutes in is when we get to the first reenactments. The film is broken into chapters, seven different chapters. It's like a book. And each chapter highlights a different idea in terms of, uh, in the opening, he sort of gives you an idea of what people in the medieval era believed, sort of the evolution of these ideas. And then we get into the actual sort of like day-to-day life of people, the idea of spells, the idea of witches' Sabbath, the idea of witch trials and sort of how those things progressed. So there are all of these different chapters that come through. And it's funny that you bring up, uh, you talked about Flaherty in the beginning, and Flaherty was, at this time in 1922, did what was considered the first documentary, and I'm putting it in quotes because there are people that debate if Flaherty's Nanook of the North is actually a documentary, because it's my understanding that the guy who was Nanook, those people no longer lived in that sort of primitive manner, and he asked them to like restage aspects of uh, a life that had basically moved on 50 to 100 years before. So some people that debate, well, that was, you know, fake. But I think that the ideas there, much like in Hexen, are sort of similar in terms of how he's staging these reenactments of people's day-to-day lives, you know, living in the little towns and dealing with the priests and, and all of these various things. And some of them, of course, as you were saying, with the love potion scene is a little bit more exaggerated. And I like these little vignettes in here. I remember specifically the the guy who comes up and is kind of berating the one woman, and she's just like, "Hey, you watch your tongue. You know, you might not ever close your mouth again." And just curses the guy on the street. It was just like, "Oh, okay, that's kind of cool." And just there are a lot of those like just little scenes as we're going through here. So we don't have necessarily connective narrative for a long time. In this documentary, it isn't until we get into more of the way that the priests are interacting with some of the parishioners, where it's just like, you know, it's just a few minutes here, a few minutes there, and just kind of seeing, yeah, that day-to-day life of everything. And and going back to Nanook of the North, I'm not sure if anybody realizes this, but the guy that played Nanook was actually a used car salesman from Winnipeg, and uh, just Flaherty saw him on the street one day and said, I want to make you a star. It's true, and his name just happened to be Nanook. Exactly, yes. Mr. N-Ook. It would stand for um, Ned. Yes, Ned-Ook. Ned-Ook of the North. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) At about 26 minutes in, we actually get the director's cameo, the first of of a couple, but the first of him and the the guys of uh, one of three guises that he has in this film. First, we're introduced to him, like I said, the first shot in the film, nice close-up of Benjamin Christensen, but at this point he gets to play the devil and a very effective devil i mean he's he's playing the devil to the hilt uh you know there's no underacting going on in this at all but i he's definitely playing that traditional horns on the head uh i don't know if he necessarily has cloven feet or anything uh like some of the etchings does but those hands those really long fingered hands were very effective and 
the the also the way that he was kind of representing torturing of the spirits rather than the actual physical people and using the kind of double double exposures to bring the spirits out and then kind of leading them into temptation i was just like this was really effective i mean it was i'm watching it at like 10 o'clock in the morning and i'm still like kind of creeped out but in a good way i was just kind of like gleefully like wow look at how great this is and he also has uh, the gene simmons tongue going on oh yeah yeah don't forget about that makes all the ladies happy that's right And there's a lot of ladies in here to keep happy it's all about the ladies and one of the things that christensen gets into in the film is he's trying to sort of get to the root cause of what may have been behind the idea of the witch hunts and specifically and and this is where i think sort of his thesis kind of falls apart because we would i think in our modern parlance see it as blaming the victim it would be like if someone created a film looking at um why so many women were raped and then go you know it was it was the miniskirts it really was the miniskirts that did the men and i think christensen in a way is trying to um talk about the witch hunts in a particular way and talk about sort of the ignorance of our uh, of our ancestors and and their superstitions and all of that stuff but it becomes clear that he's trying to peg a lot of this on our old friend that showed up in last week's episode which of course I teased in the trailer tease uh, for this episode on the entity last week hysteria yeah there's a lot of pointing the finger at hysteria. I also think that rumor and pettiness are kind of to blame for some of this too. It seems that at least with one of the the witches, quote unquote, she seems to really be like, well, hey, it's not just me. You should check out this person, this person, this person, or, you know, just like throwing all these people under these, uh, well, I guess they didn't have buses back then, but under the carriage wheels and it was just like you know wow uh you know accusing somebody of witchcraft was really such a a good way of taking care of your enemies you know and the thing that i think about when i was watching sort of the uh, the interactions with the tribunals that are going after especially the, the the older woman who is just so um I don't know if it's necessarily a, a great term to use, but she's so picturesque. Like she has these wrinkles in her face and she looks a particular way and I think she's missing some teeth or so like cheeks are kind of sunken in. And she is just um, so perfect in terms of, you know, they called up central casting and they got her. And just when they're dealing with her, the, the witch hunters, it is this, um, you know, almost naming names, this, you know, in in the modern era, sort of this McCarthy-esque idea yes. where it's like, well, okay, well, if it wasn't you or you were there, who else was there with you? You know, because if you tell us who else was there with you, then we'll let you go. Just all you have to do is name names. That's all. Yeah. And and the other thing, though, that also seems to play into it for me is the um, – the weird sexuality of the priests. There's that one really strange scene where the, the one priest is like, Oh, I'm having impure thoughts. And it's basically like, 
you know, you're going to have to whip me now. And it was just like, okay, yeah, there's something. He's really enjoying this whipping a lot more than he probably should. And that just seemed to feed into this whole strange cycle that we have going on here with this whole, you know, McCarthy-esque type thing. And then also, yeah, the hysteria and all this. And it just all seemed to play into this warped world of, uh, you know, one thing leading to another and just snowballing throughout the, 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 uh, different era, you know, eras. And that really seems to be, you know, whenever we hear about these kind of like outbreaks of, you know, because there were, there have been times where it's like, you know, Oh, all of a sudden all these, um, you know, school kids are accusing parents of this or daycare centers of this and that and the other thing. And, you know, it just kind of like explodes into this, you know, crazy thing with like, you know, oh, well, yeah, not only were they touching the kids, but they were praying to Satan. And just that weird, like, what's the word I'm looking for? Not mass hysteria, even though I think that is a a good term for it, uh, though it goes back to hysteria. Um, But just that kind of like, you know, a shared experience of um, uh, illusion. Do you know what? I, I know there's a better word that I'm missing right now. The thing that comes to my mind is just the satanic panic, which you were talking about with the um, the McCarran, wasn't it? The McCarran um, uh, child care, the, the, the kids at the daycare center in the late 70s, early 80s, which to me is, as we've talked about before, uh, the 70s were obviously a weird time for New Age and all of that stuff that came out. And we talked a bit about that on the Howling episode, but also I think a lot of that sort of feeding into people's mentality was weird bands of people out in the desert, like the Manson family. And it seems like since the Manson family forward, there's always been this concern about wandering groups of weirdos who pray or don't to some bizarro leader that's going to come and, you know, slaughter everybody in mass. Mm-hmm. And of course, while I was watching the film, I kept thinking about the devils, especially when it came to some of the torture implements and just uh, that mixed with the um, the one scene of the nuns and, and how they were going nuts about this woman uh, desecrating the statue and stuff. I was like, wow, this, you know, I'm d- waiting for Oliver Reed to show up at some point. <laughs> exactly. And of course, we'll talk a bit more about that in a little while. But, you know, one of the things that I really love in here, and I think the reason why it still holds up after almost 100 years, 93 years at this point, is just the art of it. You talked a little bit about it. I mean, the design, the staging, uh, the music that's in the um, the silent version was based on a brochure that was given to the audience in 22 when it premiered in Copenhagen. These were the classical pieces that were set to the film. And those are performed specifically in time to um, to the film. So all of that kind of stuff, and and things such as the the witches flying on brooms, oh uh, yeah, is just amazing. And the double exposures and things like that that you were talking about. And I think one of the things that kind of gets overlooked by a modern audience today, and we talked about it, is the first shot in the film, but it also happens later, is the use of close-ups. And especially extreme close-ups, you know, on the face, just basically this person's whole face. And this predates what a lot of people had said had been the the film when it came to close-ups, 
which is Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, which was in 1928. So this is six years before that. And listening to the audio commentary on the on the DVD by the the guy who did it, he was saying that some of those early reviews of The Passion of the Joan of Arc was saying that, well, we've seen this before, this use of close-ups. Mm-hmm. We saw this in Christensen's Hexen. So it was funny that he said in his research when he was looking into Hexen that he found that it could have or did influence Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc, at least in terms of reference of use of close-up. I can see that, and I can also see some of the themes of like the persecution of Joan being you know, a direct influencer as well. So I, I, I can't say that I'm too surprised to read those comparisons. I know that you know, Passion still... Just the use of the the number of close-ups. I mean, because I think Christensen probably varies up his shots a little bit more than Dreyer did. It seemed like Dreyer was really going for close-ups a lot, or at least that's my memory of that film. It almost seemed like Dreyer had a camera, two actors, and a wall, and that was about the reason why he had all the close-ups. Not that I'm knocking it, I'm just saying it's very austere production. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I, I can see the same themes as well as far as the, the the wrongful persecution of this innocent victim kind of thing. So it, I can definitely see where had we had the uh, internet in 1928, people would have just been like, oh, what a ripoff. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the thing that's funny and you know, us as modern audiences, we don't understand this uh, as well, is that when film first started, the idea of close-ups were kind of offensive. You go back and you read and you talk to film scholars and they look at sort of the cultural history of the time and those sort of extreme close-ups are very uncomfortable for people to look at. We became accustomed to the idea of close-ups in the TV era because, of course, when TV started, the screen was so small. So close-ups were necessary so that you could sort of figure out exactly who it was that you were looking at, especially in early television. So today, all sort of like use of camera in that close or even you know, super extreme close-ups like, like I'm thinking uh, in the opening of Blade Runner with the eyeball and all of that stuff. I mean, that that's not foreign to us. We accept that, and it's not shocking. But you know, 1922, 1928, those huge close-ups of the face like that would have been kind of unnerving for audiences, is from what I understand. I wonder if the introduction of sound might have helped move the camera a little bit closer as well, just because of the difficulties of miking and how that would have been. I mean, the whole idea of the boom mic, as we know from you know our, our research on a film like Dolomite, you know, it's difficult to hide that boom mic sometimes. So I'm curious if if that might have helped move that camera in a little bit nearer to the actors, because yeah, you're right. As far as older films went, so much of it was shot as if it was a stage play and you actually had the proscenium and everything with as part of the film so yeah using those close-ups i mean i i can think of some things where you might get a cutaway or um, like a medium shot when it comes to certain films but yeah as far as being right up on somebody that was a little bit foreign as far as the whole idea of you know we could put a camera in a 
stage theater and record a performance and bring it back to you and show it to you in another theater, you know, somewhere across the country or across town. But yeah, it's interesting how fast the vocabulary of film changed. I mean, you know, the, the art is just a little bit over a century old and we have the, those first 20 years, there were so many innovations that happened just within that. And also within Christensen's film, we also see him in his third cameo. And at this point, this happens in, like you were talking about the scene that reminded you of the devils with the hysterical nuns. There's an image of Christ. So the director not only puts himself in as you get to see his close-up in the beginning, he gets to play Satan, the devil, but also gets to play Christ as well. No ego in this guy. No, none at all. <laughs> but I just love that. I just love that the director put himself in three times, and he gets to play, you know, the most uh, evil and then also the most, uh, you know, beloved character in the whole thing. Yeah. Do you know much about Christensen's story? I mean, was he? This wasn't his first film, obviously, or it couldn't have been. No, he had done a few films before that. He had also been an actor in several films as well. Uh, there was a period, from what I understand in his biography, and the guy who does the who does the commentary on the Criterion edition uh, gives you a really nice background into who he was, and sort of explains how this film came to be, considering the production value and how sort of outlandish and weird it is compared to everything else that is out there. He had been a, he'd been an actor. He'd been a filmmaker before this. And I think at one point he had either directed a film in Hollywood around this time. And then he was offered by the Swedish film company to come back home and do the film. And he was, he was a Dane, but the Swedish film company at the time um, was doing like the best productions in that neck of the woods. So he was hired by them and he got to basically do whatever he wanted. And from the commentary, it's my understanding that this was actually the first of a three-part film that he wanted to do. There was two other movies that he wanted to do. And the other one was called The Saint and the other was called The Spirits. And not much is known about those two. But I think that given what he was looking at, trying to figure out modern psychological condition for ancient superstitious ideas, one could probably say that maybe the saint could have been something like him investigating schizophrenia in relation to people who hear voices who claim to be saints, and maybe the spirits something about how people see things and it's hallucinatory or something. I don't know. I mean, I, I, one can only speculate, but it seems that he really wanted to focus in on sort of what was known in the psychology of the time, which of course was heavily Freudian by 1922. Um, the world had thought that Sigmund Freud had figured out uh, what all of our problems were by this time. I have to laugh because of you describing this uh, idea of the the saintly and the schizophrenic, since that played right into another Ken Russell film that we talked about, which was Altered States. And that was one of the things that was going on. It was more in the, the book of Altered States, but there definitely was a, a portion of the film where they did talk about that and the whole idea of you know getting closer to God via these schizophrenic episodes. So it's, it's interesting how, um, you know, to find some of those parallels between Christensen and Russell. 
Well, I think if anything, they were both appeared to be interested in, if not religion specifically on a personal level, which obviously everybody knows Russell was Catholic, but also looking at it in terms of what it does in the culture and into the individual, where I would see a definite correlation between hex and the devils and altered states in that way. The thing that was interesting also, in, and this is to be expected given this era in which the film came out, um, it was either outright banned or heavily cut when it was released. It premiered, I guess, in the Scandinavian countries without much problem, and that is my understanding, the cut that we see in the Criterion edition. But in America, it depended on where it was shown that either it was banned or it was heavily cut because you're looking at all kinds of horrific and ghoulish acts, uh, nudity, uh, implied sexuality. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, it's a pre-code film in all of its glories. I love the one part where uh, there's some lovemaking going on and they cut back to the one devil and he's churning butter very vigorously. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah. wow, I think that might be a stand-in for something. It kind of reminds me of a bit that was in uh, Mr. Show. David, you see what I have to contend with? I got a naked puppet doing a lewd, lascivious fandango on the lap of a full-grown man. I got women over here dipping candles. Fella over there, he's got a butter churner. It's like a pioneer pawn shop in here. Close it down, boys. <laughs> So yeah, it was heavily it was heavily censored and like I said one can understand why. Oh yeah. And because it was censored and because it had trouble being released, obviously Christensen never got to make his two follow-up films. The one thing that's interesting on the Criterion edition and I don't know if you had a chance to watch this was in 1941, the film was re-released and obviously this is the si- this is now the sound era and he does sort of I guess what we would call the uh, the white coat which is an old joke back to exploitation film where you would have a guy in a white lab coat, doctor type, telling you about this movie you're going to see so they can get away with showing you, you know, sex and naked people. And so (laughs) that's not necessarily why he's wearing the white coat, but he appears to be in like a lab coat and it's probably about, I don't know, eight minutes. And it's Christensen talking about his film and talking about, his conclusions in 1922 and what they know now almost 20 years later. And at the same time talking about um, if he could have made the film today, he goes, it would be very hard to make the film because what would the devil sound like doing a silent film actually in a lot of ways is better because you don't have to answer those questions and you leave it up to the audience to figure it out. So, so it's kind of an interesting little intro that he did and I'm sure you can find it out on YouTube or, um, you know, you can go to projection booth.com and pick up the criterion edition of this uh, DVD. Cause I think it's definitely worth your time. Yeah. The thing I have to say is that the, print of it looked gorgeous and i could only imagine seeing this projected in a theater it must just be such eye candy because even just seeing it on my little tv i was like wow this looks amazing and just some of the detail that are in there because you know you, you you could see some great old film and then sometimes you you know are going to see the scratchy kind of stuff and criterion doesn't necessarily put out stuff like that very often so i was very glad to see just how painstakingly restored this one was and just how beautiful it looked and just 
the tinting and some of the um, just the the use of the um, well, like I said before, the use of the music. I mean, everything looked fantastic in this one. Any final thoughts on this version of the film before we go to our interview and then talk about the other one? I definitely can see where they had problems with some of the sensors, and there were some kind of ghoulish things in here, like the the whole thing about the witches eating the babies and the the shot of the baby with the blood dripping off of it into the urn and the woman's catching it. And I'm just like, wow, this is really gross. But I, again, I was just loving it. I was just so happy seeing this boundary pushing movie that I, I really uh, had a great time watching it. The one thing that's talked about on the commentary, which I didn't necessarily know is one of the musical pieces and specifically the musical piece that is used during, I believe, that scene that you're talking about, The Witch's um, Sabbath, is actually a piece of music that has a melody that denotes a direct melody to a Jewish song. And the guy who did the commentary said that one could see it as anti-Semitic. Because you know, yeah, I can it, see that. I it, mean, we all know that Jews eat babies. Well, of course, yeah. But <laughs> the um, so he was just saying that there was this thing about well, you know, Christensen may have been enlightened compared to most of the people in 1922, but the use of that piece of music could open questions in terms of was he making an anti-Semitic statement or was it just this piece of music really kind of had this sense. I mean, it's not like he's using Havana Gila or something. I mean, but it does have, it, it, it comes from a specific song that is in sort of Jewish tradition. Yeah. That's kind of a shame, but at the same time, it's like, well, it is 1922. People weren't as enlightened back then. And yeah, I can see where, you know, some of that might've come from. All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview with Robert Thurston, author of The Witch Hunts, A History of the Witch Persecution in Europe and North America, after these brief but all-so-important messages. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons. And body counts. Body count. The mathematics of murder and menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. 
Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Christopher Media, the Weedsman Podcast. Here's rickets, polio, conjunctivitis, AIDS. AIDS. Let's just, just go hog wild. Being in the car accident, you just <laughs> use a little bit, you'll be fine. Yeah, rub it on your car and yourself. <laughs> It'll fix your car and your bones. <laughs> Try this special trick to get out of traffic tickets with Rick Simpson oil. Rub it on the cop. He'll just go away. <laughs> the Weedsman Podcast. Every Friday on iTunes and ChristopherMedia.net. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamNeed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com Robert Thurston, I'm professor of history at Miami University, and I also run a coffee roasting and retail business. Now, as for uh, the book on the witch hunts, can you give me the title and kind of give me some background into why you decided to write the book? The full title is The Witch Hunts, A History of the Witch Persecutions in Europe and North America, and it's actually the second edition of a book that came out earlier with a slightly different title. So this was published by Pearson Education in uh, 2007. I came to write about the witch hunts because, actually, of my interest in Russian and Soviet history. I wrote uh, a couple of things on 20th century Russian history, and the second of those books was on the terror of the 1930s, and I was really intrigued by how the terror actually worked, that is, who was arrested, why, how were they treated, Uh, and then, of course, I tried to figure out, like, like many people have, why the terror erupted when it did in 1937, 38, 
and why the mass arrests lasted for such a short time, actually, and why they were so erratic. There were no arrests in parts of the Soviet Union. There were, uh, it was a really high proportion of arrests among people in other parts of the USSR. And then, in a way, it seemed natural to move to a, another mass persecution, the witch hunts, because I started to sense in, in teaching things like Western civilization that there were all kinds of similarities. There are huge differences, but in terms of the way people were arrested on the mere suspicion of doing something that wasn't logical, the way they were tortured, the way they were uh, treated in general, those many of those points started to sound pretty similar. Uh, and at first I had the idea of writing a comparative treatment of the two mass persecutions, and then I thought, well, no, the witch hunts were just too complicated to do that. So I just moved in that direction intellectually. When you started the project, how long did it uh, take you to put together? Oh, boy, years, because the first the first edition was, uh, I think, 2001. And so I, I had the habit at that time of working on two things at once. So it's a little bit complicated to say even what portion of my time I devoted just to the witch hunts, but certainly I began to read extensively about them even by uh, the early to mid-1990s. So it took me a long time, took me a fair amount of travel, digging into archives, that kind of thing, uh, before the, the first edition of the book came out. When looking at it, what sort of periods are we talking about in terms of time? When does it kind of start and when does it kind of level off? The period of the witch hunts is generally given as very roughly 1500 to 1700. There are cases before that. And the earliest case that starts to look like a, a real witchcraft trial was 1326 in Ireland. And then there are other uh, trials that started out as trials of heretics in the 1430s in Switzerland, and they pretty much morph into trials of witches in that time and place. Uh, but the, the peak of the witch hunts are two periods, really, 1580s and 90s, and the 1620s and on into the 1630s. And then, by the way, by the time uh, you get to Salem, Massachusetts, that's 1692. That's really late in the history of the witch hunts. And again, after 1700, there are relatively few known cases. The last one that people usually count is about 1786 back in Switzerland. And by which there we mean someone who was accused of actually allying with the devil in order to carry out evil deeds. That's not necessarily an ancient um, idea, by the way. It goes back to the, to the Middle Ages, which is a long time ago, but not, you know, ancient world. And what is it that you find in your research sort of precipitated this, that sort of brought it forward and brought this, you know, mass uh, amount of trials and torture and all that stuff that eventually happened? Well, it may be that I have a really sick mind, but um, what what fascinated me was, was how a society could uh, get along for a while with a certain degree of, of fear, let's say the, the fear of witches, or in the Soviet Union, the fear of of uh, capitalist spies and agents and so on. And, but anyway, a society can, can 
move along, lump along fairly well for a while. And then in those two cases in particular, I think a kind of panic developed in certain places, not everywhere in Western Europe, to be sure. Uh, and people start to, and officials start to abandon the standards of evidence that they had previously held. For example, in Salem, uh, testimony was allowed by teenage girls, which was really not the, the practice in the courts in colonial America. And then they were allowed to testify about spectral evidence that the, the specter of some person whose body might have been 20 miles away, that that specter had attacked one of these afflicted, as it was said, teenage girls in, in another place. So that kind of evidence was never admitted in, in the courts of New England before 1692, and it was not admitted after that. So what is it that makes a society kind of lose its balance and panic and abandon the earlier standards that it had for evidence and testimony? And then after a while, the, the panic seems to burn itself out after a lot of people have lost their lives, and society kind of writes itself, and even officials start to apologize for what had happened, and things go back to whatever the normal, and that, that does include a lot of violence anyway in the Soviet Union, of course, but, but the, the terrible wave of arrests and persecution uh, is over, often fairly quickly, a number of witchcraft cases too. I wanted to explore all that. How does that happen? How do people deal with this? How do people react to that? Why do they get into that kind of, of pattern? When you look at the history of it, what role do you see as the book, uh, The Witch's Hammer, The, the Malleus uh, Maleficarum, or whatever, however you pronounce it in Latin, uh, what role does something like that play in the witch hunts of Europe? That book had a, a very checkered role in the witch hunts, it was written by, uh, now we're sure, just one monk, Heinrich Kramer, in 1486, and, and he appeared to be really uh, ill and to have a, a, a terrible attitude toward women, even for that time. And so uh, he wrote the book and, and immediately uh, was pretty much quashed by his own bishop in that area. He was a Dominican monk, but the bishop had some authority over him. And he had to, to flee that, that area. This was Brixen in, in Austria today. And then he, he tried, he was, a, he was a crook as well. He tried to put another monk's name on the book as well as his own to give it more credibility. But a, a, a number of places accepted his book. A number of members of the <coughs> elite thought that the book was a, a really good guide to uh, how to deal with witches. And in other places, the city of Nuremberg, for example, was completely rejected. And it was rejected by the Holy Office of the Spanish Inquisition in the early 16th century. So that book, in a way, gives, and the history of that book gives great insight into the witch hunts. Accepted in some places, did help. Uh, lead to torture and death of a lot of people. In other places, no, not accepted, totally rejected. So uh, the Malleus, it, 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 it's still a, a classic. Everybody has to read it who's really interested in the witch hunts, but it shouldn't be taken too seriously or considered to be too influential. 
You know, the witch hunts also seemed to happen at a time when the church was starting to go through a transition, and then, you know, Martin Luther is in this period and all of that. Does that sort of play in the background as well? Yes, although trying to trace the the origins of the witch hunts, and, and as I said, they really don't start on any scale at all till the 1430s in parts of Switzerland. And so you have to link the history of uh, witch persecutions to the persecutions of heretics. And those start in a big way in the 11th century. So uh, you have to look that far back, I think, to try to figure out why the church, and then it's only the Catholic Church in Western Europe, of course, why the church and ordinary people become more and more nervous about heretics and why they finally, uh, we don't know exactly why, we certainly don't have diaries from judges or anything like that. We don't know why exactly the trials that I mentioned before in the 1430s in Switzerland, why they shifted from trials of heretics to trials of witches. But, but the heretics were identified as early as the 11th century as uh, engaging in all kinds of disgusting behavior, sexual orgies that included sodomy and incest, killing and eating babies. Uh, and those images then were transferred pretty much wholesale to witches later on, again by the late 14th century. And then thinkers, writers, highly educated people, the film keeps talking about naive views of this or naive views of that. Well, you have to be very careful with that word. A lot of really well-educated people for their time uh, began to talk about how witches could fly instantly from one place to a big gathering called the Witch's Sabbath. So when you had people in the educated elite talking about that, uh, that started, I think, to uh, to rile up other members of the elite. They could all read Latin at that point. If you were an educated person, you could read Latin. And then the other thing that worked into it was a, a campaign by the church again, long before the long before Luther made any noise at all, which was 1517. But long before that, the, the church, as the Catholic Church in Western Europe, began a kind of a, a big promotion of what I call the big devil. And so you can see in all kinds of frescoes and mosaics, in the Florence Baptistry, for example, fantastic scenes, all in mosaics, uh, of the devil chomping on souls from his mouth, snakes come out of his ears, and it's it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, But uh, these mosaics and frescoes and paintings and so on appeared on a huge scale, and I think they were meant to frighten people. This is the devil is loose on earth. The devil may come for you, and so it was the church's promotion of the big devil, which, by the way, you don't find in in Eastern Orthodoxy, Russian or Greek religion. You don't find it in any other religion. But the the big devil in the West became a rival to Christ. In many depictions, he's he has equal stature with Christ. And so the idea became really widespread. The devil's out there. He's walking around on earth. And if you do even the slightest wrong thing, he will enlist you in his, uh, in his evil ways. And you will carry out his evil deeds. Uh, maleficia was the, the word in Latin. So all these kinds of things combined, even before Luther came on the scene, 
But when the Protestant Reformation and then what we call the Catholic Reformation or Counter-Reformation arose uh, in the 1540s, really, uh, both sides did become more concerned about enemies from the other side. That is, a Protestant enemy might be in Catholic lands, a Catholic enemy might be in Protestant lands. And so that, that helped the general level of tension, but I'm convinced that it was not a question on, on either side or Protestant sides of trying to eliminate Catholics. It was mostly peasants in a village would get very suspicious of other peasants in the same village and they would make charges against them that didn't involve satanic help but then if the if the local elite believed in stuff like the malleus maleficarum the elite would would enter the scene and would would uh, begin torture and would ask all kinds of leading questions of these peasants when did you meet with the devil uh, wasn't the devil in the shape of a large black man? When did you first have sexual intercourse with the devil? That kind of thing. And those questions, coupled with torture, elicited, of course, thousands upon thousands of confessions across Europe. And those people were, were almost always executed. I often think about sort of the the headspace of people, the common people, as you're saying, the peasants and the townsfolk uh, during this era, because, you know, unlike today, where we can ignore the church if we like, we don't have to go, uh, we can be involved in some sort of pop culture, we can read, we can watch movies, we can do all kinds of things that bring our attention to all these different things, basically the church was center of everyone's life. So the idea that these stories and people would be creating stories and uh, embellishing these stories in some way, because these were basically all the stories they had. I think that's, you're really onto a lot there. Um, the way I think about it is, it is that peasants, just ordinary people, usually illiterate, of course, out in the countryside, uh, had all kinds of reasons to think that magic was all around them. I mean, if a, if a child was healthy uh, at noon and then dead by 4 p.m. and covered with horrible spots or something, uh, why would anybody, given the level of scientific knowledge at that time, why would anybody have rejected the idea that magic was involved? And then peasants were, we somehow often romanticize peasants. Oh, you know, wouldn't it be great to live in a village and know everybody? Well, there were terrific rivalries, and uh, peasants had awfully long memories. So that, for example, if uh, Jean had a baby and uh, Marie walked by Jean's hut and Marie muttered something and then the baby got sick and died or pigs or whatever, uh, people would would remember, oh, yeah, Jean, was, Marie walked by. Uh, they would remember that for 20 or 30 or 50 years. And so it was easy for some peasants to get a reputation pretty quickly. Oh, that's a nasty person. Or, or even to the to the uh, extent, it sounds crazy to us now, but again, you, as you say, you have to get into the minds of the peasants. It, I, I know a case in which uh, one peasant woman was able to grow very large beets, and other peasants couldn't grow beets that were nearly that big. So the other peasants decide, oh, she's using magic to grow those beets. Or if somebody's cow gave a lot of milk and other people's cows didn't, oh, He's using magic to steal milk from my cows. But the peasants didn't 
say, to, I don't know of a single case in which they said, oh, that's because the devil is helping Jean or Marie or Fritz. Uh, it was, again, the elite coming into the picture with their ideas of uh, what the witch really was and their ideas that the, the person was a witch who had made a pact with Satan. Then the elite would, would bring all that force and torture to bear in a lot of cases. Uh, the peasants never, never really specified where these supernatural connections came from. And that's, by the way, what you find among, let's say, the Navajos uh, in North America. That's what you find today among uh, people in Kenya, in Indonesia, where there have been a lot of, uh, in the 1990s and early 2000s, a, a lot of killings of neighbors by neighbors. But they don't say, oh, you know, this person is a minion of the devil. Uh, they, just, they just take out their fears, their understanding of the world, whatever it is, and, and ascribe magic to uh, the person that they kill, persons that they kill. Come to the end of the era, and, and by the end of the era, you know, as we head towards 1700, we're looking at, you know, Protestant Reformation has happened, the Counter Reformation is is sort of in play, and then also we start to see uh, science and and uh, I guess the Enlightenment to some extent uh, comes along. Maybe a, a few years later, do you think that's what sort of did it in, or what was it that you find sort of ended uh, the the great sort of uh, witch hunts of Europe? That's a, a, an idea that's out there a lot, that somehow uh, the Enlightenment, which really can't date much before the even 1740s, that the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution put an end to the witch hunts. I think about it more or less the other way around, because what, what brought the hunts to an end in southwestern Germany in the 1670s, for example, in Salem in 1692-93, was that people began to say, people from the elite began to say, wait a minute, this is not valid evidence. The girl, the teenage girls screaming and falling on the floor in fits and talking about someone's specter attacking them, that's not valid evidence. Or other people saying things like, prominent writers saying things like, if the witches are allied with the devil, why is it that the witches have to draw their own water and chop their own wood? Why aren't they rich? And why why would a witch kill someone every twenty years, you know, and not more? Why isn't there a lot more damage out there? But f for the most part, the idea—it's not my original idea—is I think that witch hunters stopped in place after place because they they could no longer identify who the witches were, and that that tended to happen when a hunt got to be pretty large. <coughs> Again, back to Salem, more than 200 people were accused of being witches, including the wife of the governor and so on. Well, when you start to accuse a really wide circle of people, all of a sudden it's got to, it does. It did occur to others around them, There's wait a minute, there's no good evidence for that. So uh, in, in place after place, that's why they stopped. It had to do with the question of evidence, and it had to do, and the problem was, again, how do you know, and there were all sorts of voices that had been around a long time saying, wait a minute, 
because a witch was or a person was walking around muttering and then a hailstorm occurred that ruined crops that's not evidence at all that that person caused that hailstorm so i i actually think of this connection to the scientific revolution more or less the other way around that is when when uh, various people in Germany and Sweden and the Netherlands and Spain and, and Massachusetts began to think about what it, what really is good evidence for the causes of some natural phenomenon, a hailstorm, a heavy wind, uh, the death of a baby and so on. Uh, then they started to think more broadly about well, what is good evidence for anything. One example of that is Cotton Mather. Uh, one of the leading ministers of Massachusetts in 1692, he was pretty much the force behind the witch hunts. He supplied the sort of ideological and theological ammunition for the hunts in Salem, in which 20 people died. But he also conducted scientific experiments. He was very interested in all of that. <clears throat> and I'm not saying that the scientific side won out in his mind, but he did. he did begin to consider what is valid evidence for any natural occurrence and or well and began began to reject the idea that there were supernatural forces at work that could do one thing or another so incidentally by the time you get to shakespeare and macbeth he doesn't talk about he doesn't use the word witch and he's already giving us a scene from scotland that was long ago and far away so you start to get you start to get a kind of a, what's been called an intermediate world, Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream. These are all very late 1500s, early 1600s, where there are sprites and fairies and so on. They're not necessarily so harmful, or not, they might be playful. Or then you get Mother Goose in French at the in the 1690s. So going back to your point earlier, Rob, there are other ideas and narratives around uh, other visions of kind of an intermediate world that the church doesn't necessarily like, but that it, it doesn't have uh, a, a, an effective way to counter. So it's not any longer just the devil, just, just the good, just the evil, the devil versus Jesus. It's all these other sort of ideas kicking around as well. You said that you had a chance to watch uh, Benjamin Christensen's Hexen and wanted to get your uh, thoughts on it since you have studied the witch hunts and uh, obviously wrote a book. Well, uh, first of all, a literally fantastic film. I mean, I was really impressed by a lot of the visuals, a lot of the acting, even though uh, it's 1922 and they are not speaking, uh, and the way the music and the visuals go together and the sets were brilliant, I thought, and, and the costumes, you know, really wonderful. Um, but we got to keep in mind that that was made in 1921-22, and so it's really Freudian at the end, for one thing. Oh, hysteria, there are hysterical women around. Well, that's, a, that's an extremely vague diagnosis. It's not really used very much, and... Uh, so, but as far as explaining the witch hunts, he uh, he talks about the fears of witches and so on and so forth, and ref doesn't refer much to the malleus maleficarum, which translates as the hammer of witches, by the way. But uh, and he, Christensen, confused. Um, he made a common mistake in ascribing the 
uh, trials of witches to uh, the Inquisition. Actually, the Inquisition was um, pretty mild toward witches. The job of the Inquisition was to go after heretics and so and, and to follow specific procedures and, and immediately jumping into torture was not one of those procedures. And as far as, as well, I've done a fair amount of reading and just wrote another article about this, in fact, and, and uh, the Inquisition was, was pretty mild toward witches and since it was much more, con- and since it had specific procedures, uh, even in, in the Holy Office in Rome and across most of Italy, after a while, people were allowed to have defense attorneys if they could afford one, and uh, they were <clears throat> they were not tortured. They were only tortured if there were inconsistencies in their testimonies, uh, and. The, the Holy Office in Rome, there were different holy offices in Spain and so on, and Portugal. Uh, but, but the Inquisition, um, since it had careful pr- procedures and, and really was concerned with solid proof by the lights of the day in one way or another, it didn't convict many witches at all. The witches were actually tried in secular courts. Like there would be a court of uh, Washington County, not, I mean, that kind of thing. Uh, and so... Uh, it wouldn't have been monks who uh, <clears throat> questioned witches and tortured witches, but again, secular authorities. Uh, and yeah, the the film was it's accurate in in talking about how there could be a kind of a a snowball or ripple effect. One woman might be accused, and then she might name others who supposedly went to the devil's Sabbath to meet and have sex with him, but. Uh, that's that was exactly the problem after a while, and to the extent that that happened, I mentioned Salem, southwestern Germany, around Munich, the same sort of problem. Uh, again, people began to realize, wait a minute, anybody can be accused, and if anybody can be accused, then you really don't know who's guilty and who isn't guilty. So I think that the film put together a lot of, of ideas that were very prominent in 1921-22, but I, I would see it more as a, as a great piece of film history. I thought I knew something about film history. I'd never heard of that movie before, so I, I really enjoyed watching it. Uh, but as far as the witch hunts go, I hope people would pick up something else to read and not just rely on the film. I understand that one of the places of contention within the film is the number that he quotes in terms of the amount of people persecuted and killed. No way. No way that 8 million people were put to death. That's a figure that goes way back in time and that was retailed fairly widely even into the 1970s, 8 or 9 million people killed. But the most recent estimates are more on the lines of 40,000 executed. Now, we don't know. So many records were destroyed, lost, stolen, and uh, or never kept in the first place. But a lot of these old uh, estimates were uh, extrapolations from a few known cases. And there's been so much work on the witch hunts since the even the mid-1960s, and so many people have gone over the existing records in detail uh, that they've had to lower the estimates. And so, just give you one example, there was a, a, a nunnery in Quedlinburg, Germany, Q-U-E, Quedlinburg, which now was later in East Germany, and supposedly there, uh, 200 witches were executed in a single day, 
in the early 17th century. Well, we come to find out that was a myth. That never happened. <clears throat> and in many cases, we see uh, old estimates of, of very high numbers just have to be reduced on the basis of the evidence that we do have in front of us. So you will still see estimates of a recent book, 200,000, 250,000, but, but again, the, the, the most careful attempts to put together what we do know on the basis of records that we do have, and then some attempt, well, we know there were some other hunts there and there. So we come up with a range of around 40,000 deaths, which is a lot of people. A whole lot of people, but again, uh, very erratic. So, as you see, there were not many persecutions in Italy at all. Um, a total of eight people we know of executed in Portugal. It's eight too many. Um, very few in the northern Netherlands, and incidentally, uh, very few in large towns or cities. Um, London, no. Uh, Frankfurt, no. Which is uh, on on that order. So uh, we can't, we just can't accept the idea of eight mil of the film. Eight million were killed, and everybody was always terrified of witches and the devil. No, and in some cases, again, the elite staunchly resisted. They 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 believed in the devil. I think they believed in the devil because if you if you said out loud, "I don't believe in the devil," then the next question might well be, "Well, if you don't believe in the devil." Maybe you don't believe in God uh, in the in the thinking of that time. Uh, and today, by the way, I, I don't have figures off the top of my head, but polls show that in the United States, uh, large numbers of people on the order of 50% or more believe in the devil. Now, what does that mean exactly? Uh, we, we don't know. But uh, again, referring to the devil could explain all sorts of events that people couldn't explain by reference to science. They didn't have the science that could explain those phenomena. But that's far from, again, indicating that people everywhere were terribly afraid that the devil was going to come uh, into their bedrooms at night or get their children or anything like that. In terms of other key points within the film, uh, where do you think he gets it right and where do you think he gets it wrong? Well, again, it would have been secular courts that arrested and tortured people I think he's he's uh, he's correct in in talking about the way the torture worked, for the most part, and then when people when people confessed finally under torture or just the threat of torture, uh, they would often be they would typically be executed. So I think he I think he gets it right in the sense of showing those those uh, monks, although it would have been other officials who were more or less obsessed with the idea that the devil had uh, enlisted someone and that person was carrying out evil deeds. And I think he gets it right in the sense that, okay, if there's an unexplained uh, illness or problem, like what they called it in the translation, the dizziness of the printer, yeah, to think that an evil force was at work, that was fairly typical, again, on the part of peasants and elite alike, alike, but again, it didn't necessarily mean that the uh, officials would immediately arrest somebody and, and put that person to torture. So, uh, and I think he's right in terms of, of the uh, images that were everywhere of the devil. Uh, as, I, as I said before, that the, the Western, the Catholic Church especially, put on a big campaign to 
impress upon people the idea that the devil was everywhere with frescoes, mosaics, paintings, sermons, all of that. So I think that that part of the atmosphere painted by the film was correct, except that, again, you had to have both the accusations from peasants against their neighbors and the acceptance of basic witch beliefs by the elite. You had to have all that in order to make uh, a witch trial. So he didn't he didn't quite get all of that right, but you know, for 1921-22, that was fine. I think he's also right to, to point to the idea that we have uh, a lot of superstitions out there. Uh, I found a definition of superstition that I liked, and that's, that is, superstition is someone else's beliefs that you don't agree with. That's all. So, uh, in that sense, yeah, we've got plenty of superstitions, plenty of Plenty of belief out there in conspiracy theories, the evil access, axis of George Bush, that kind of thing, um, conspiracy theories about John Kennedy's death and, and so on and so forth. So I'm not sure we're, we're terribly removed from the mentality of the uh, Middle Ages. And by the way, we also have to say the early modern period, which we date <clears throat> very roughly from uh, 1500 on so most of these executions were not actually in the middle ages but that's that's sort of a technical point i wouldn't worry about too much one of the things that uh, although I, and I agree with you the ending and hysteria has a lot to do with uh, freudian psychology popularity of the era it does in a way try to connect this idea of the past to the present and as you were saying about you know we've got superstitions and people still act in these ways as you were talking about with your interest in Russian history. Yes, and and again, uh, there have been really terrible outbreaks of witch hunting in Kenya, for example, some in India, some in Indonesia, um, and these are, these are not produced by the elite. These are pretty much mass lynchings, that is, crowds take uh, the law into their sense of justice into their own hands and, and kill their neighbors. In many cases, actually burning them alive in the in the 1990s and in Kenya and Indonesia. Uh, so it's still out there, and I think uh, it's out there in the United States to some extent. In in the in the sense that a, a lot of people uh, reject mainstream science in certain basic ways now. For example, people don't want their children vaccinated. Uh, all the scientific evidence suggests that that I've seen suggests that you you need to vaccinate your children, and, and that's the way to keep them and, and other children safe. Another example that that was uh, kind of a big deal in books on the witch hunts for a while was the various scares about uh, child abuse in daycare centers and. Um, it was a big one in, in Southern California, for example, maybe 15 years ago. And the people uh, who, who ran the daycare centers in several cases were convicted on the basis of very flimsy evidence and on the basis of leading questions put to children by psychologists and, and uh, other people who, who had no business asking them uh, leading questions. So... It's quite possible that our tendency to believe that, again, conspiracies sometimes connected with the supernatural or just to reject 
mainstream science. Now, mainstream science has led us astray in any number of cases. We can think of Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, those nuclear disasters. Uh, so I, I'm not saying that we should always accept the latest thing that the mainstream scientists tell us because they may tell us something different the next day. But nonetheless, um, to re- there, I think there's a kind of a movement out there against genetically modified foods, for example, that's not based on a careful look at science. So people, people are still looking around for some other kind of answer to why things occur uh, that doesn't have to do with, let's say, serious evidence. Now, that's my take on it. Um, the next person you talk to might might say, oh, you know, there's plenty of evidence that genetically, genetically modified foods are horrible for you, etc. But I, I think, again, there is a tendency for people to to look around, in, in many cases, for well, what's, what's really causing X, Y, or Z, and that gets us off and back to the supernatural. Now, I was going to uh, ask you before I let you go about what you think we can learn from the witch hunts of Europe and America, but it, it almost seems like that was your summation. <laughs> well, may, maybe so. Uh, I, I mean, just, just we, we, uh, and we know, incidentally, that there, there have been all kinds of people, um, way too often black men, imprisoned on the basis of very shaky evidence uh, and we know uh, in reviewing these cases of scares about child abuse in daycare centers that we that the courts uh, were very uh, loose and unprofessional about dealing with the evidence. So uh, yeah, we have to we have to look at what mainstream science tells us, and we have to be very careful about what we know and what we don't know, and be very skeptical when when uh, anybody points to a broad conspiracy theory or to uh, that's what the devil was you know the, the devil is out there and he's uh, in the early modern period and he has created this massive conspiracy to destroy fertility in crops and babies and animals and to kill and just to make things nasty we, we don't have that attitude very much today but I sometimes wonder if we don't um, pick up that kind of view of the world and apply it almost wholesale to, let's say, Russia, China, Iraq, whatever our enemies are, we tend to uh, to blow them up to, I don't know, to, to really, really hideous proportions and to see them as a grave threat to us when I don't think any of those countries are a serious threat to us. But there you would get tremendous debate, of course. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me on. Thank you to Robert Thurston for taking the time. You can learn more about his work and his book on our website, projection-booth.com. We're back and we're talking about Hexen. Now, as we said, there is a second version of this film, which is usually called Witchcraft Through the Ages, because that's what it calls itself. And it was done in 1968. Now, this is what some dub the sound version. And the reason why is because you just heard at the top of the show 
a bit of that sound version because obviously there's no trailer to the 1922 version of the film and even if there was it would just be lovely classical music so the 1968 version it features the voice of pretty well-known writer i guess you would say in the late 20th century william s burroughs the unmistakable voice of william s burroughs yeah i was so glad when uh i saw this one just because of that creepy creaky voice of his (laughs) and i was glad that they used it sparingly i wasn't sure like because he narrates the whole first part of the film the whole thing about you know where we are in the the heavenly sphere as it were and i was afraid that he would just keep talking through the rest of it but he's used fairly sparingly and just uh kind of helps explain a few things i think yeah, he does the opening, and you can kind of understand that the guy who did the film was a guy by the name of Anthony Block. I believe that's how you name say his name, B-A-L-C-H. And I did some research on him. He was a U.K. filmmaker and also a distributor. And it's my understanding that he met Burroughs and other members of the Beats in the early 60s and then started collaborating with them. As a matter of fact, he's mentioned in the thank yous to Burroughs' novel, The Ticket That Exploded. So he had worked with them on various things, and somehow I I wish that there was more of a backstory on how this version came to be, because from my research, there's very little that I was able to find. Even on the Criterion disc, they, they don't have a commentary for it. There's very few notes related to it. I guess it may have just been something that passed into public domain, given that it was by this time 46 years later that he did this version. And he created a hired uh, composer to create a jazz score for it, which is kind of disconcerting at times. Uh, it, the jazz score doesn't quite work, although at times it is quite effective and creepy. Uh, there's there's one part that it works, and also if you're a fan of Frank Zappa and avant-garde uh, jazz, it's interesting to hear. This is kind of earlier work, not early, early work, but earlier work of uh, violinist Jean-Luc Ponty, who went on to work with Frank Zappa and also have a solo career onto his own. Yeah, there were times where I was just like, okay, yeah, this is a little much, but I, it was never too distracting for me, so I thought it was fairly effective, because, you know, I'm still not sure. The jury's out for me as far as, like, the Marauder version of Metropolis versus, you know, the the. Uh, original score for it. Uh, I'm still not sure if I'm hip with the Marauder or whatever, but uh, this one, I, I thought that it worked. And like I said, it, I mean, really, like Burroughs' voice at times seems a little otherworldly to me. So having him as your narrator seems to work. And then also having the jazz and a beat writer together really seems to be like, you know, uh, peanut butter and um, uh, chocolate as far as this goes. And they end up knocking out about 27 minutes out of the film. So it goes from 104 minutes in the uh, Hexen original from 22, and then Witchcraft Through the Ages becomes 76 minutes. So they condense some of the titles. You get in the reenactment sections mostly um, continuance of the titles. Everything seems to be in order. It doesn't seem like they've cut this thing and moved it around too much. It seems to flow in much the same order. 
<laughs> yeah, it's not the the butcher job that we would see in something like Possession, where the American version was just like, what the hell are you people doing? <laughs> yeah, and like I said, at times the, the music is effective. It's interesting to see sort of the change in some of the titles, um, how they've been sort of updated for modern audiences. There's still the whole thing about women and their frailties <laughs> to a certain extent at the end. I think Burroughs' summary here is kind of interesting. We don't burn old women today, but aren't they wretched in a different way? And the hysterical woman with the strange behavior, isn't she still something of an enigma to us? Nowadays, we can find such women to the lunatic asylum, or, if the woman be rich, into a modern clinic with her. And there, the therapeutic shower has replaced the tortures of former times. But the enigma of the devil remains, and will, no doubt, remain unsolved until the death of the last man, or woman. Yeah, that end part, we didn't really talk about that a whole lot, but that just, it felt very, it felt like a 1950s medical film as far as like, you know, what is the matter with women? And just going through, and it, I guess it was with the Burroughs uh, narration felt even more like it. We were just talking about uh, the way that these women with hysteria, just they can't do this, they can't do that. You know, the the scene where they're uh, pricking the woman in the back with a whatever device that is, and she's like, nope, no, I don't feel it. Yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, this is kind of strange. And yeah, that part to me really felt like, you know, women are weird and they really need to be, uh, you know, watched very carefully because they could either... You know, you either want to throw them into an asylum, or if they're rich, they go into uh, what's the uh, salon, right? And what was going on with that woman in the salon? Was she like, was that shower like scalding her or something? Well, I think that's the implication, especially with the voiceover in the Burroughs version. But I don't necessarily think that that's the implication. And here's the difference between when you have a voiceover versus the silent film, where to me it just seemed like. Okay, well, either we lock them up over here or we send them over. You know, if you have enough money, you can go to this place. So in the Christensen version, it almost seems like, oh, they're just, you know, they're just at a health spa where when Burroughs has the voiceover about, you know, the showers, of course, that also leads to a connotation of the idea of the showers, you know, when we talk about um, Nazi Germany or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just uh, destroy all women. Yeah. And it's it's interesting to have him do this and all of that because he does have that voice, he does have that tone, but in terms of the rewrite, it does kind of take a bit of the I guess the the call to trying to create something that is accurate, at least for the time historically and things like that. It kind of moves that out and puts this like art layer on top of it instead. So to me, it's even though they're working with the same materials, it does tonally feel like two different films. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. And yeah, I think sometimes because of what I know about Burroughs, that tends to color it as well a little bit too. Is there anything else about this version that stands out for you? The witchcraft through the ages? I was surprised at just how 
well done it was. And yeah, I was afraid, especially when I saw the running time, I was like, oh man, what did they do? Did they butcher this thing? And I can't say that it was a, a loving uh, tribute to it or a loving recut, uh, but it wasn't a butcher job. So I was glad for that. And I found it very effective as well. And I guess if you can't handle traditional silent films with beautiful score, I guess this might be more your cup of tea, but I would say, you know, watch the original first. Yeah. I just think also that this one probably wouldn't even be as accessible for some folks too, because not that Burroughs is getting into more sort of out there, you know, vocal and word tricks, but I'm sure that some people would find the jazz score a little grating. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that it helped me watching the jazz version first and then seeing the other version because I could tolerate it a lot more. And the original just felt more rich with the, the score and with, well, with another half hour of the film also helped quite a bit too. So we talked about witches in film, obviously with Hexen and witchcraft through the ages and you had brought up the devils. So I would just say that if anyone wants to uh, know more about sort of hysterical nuns, which you get to see in Hexen, go back and listen to our episode on the devils. Yeah, I think those two films would make a really good double feature. I, I would love to see those, especially because they're both beautifully shot. So seeing those projected in a theater would be amazing. But even without, just you know, check them out on home video and knock yourself out. As for Witches in Film, um, do you have any favorites beyond those? Well, uh, I think Rosemary's Baby is definitely a favorite when it comes to witches. And... Uh, I guess that's about it. I'm not a big fan of like the witches of Eastwick. I mean, the our main uh, female protagonists are pretty great, but this was that was one of those roles where it was like Jack Nicholson was doing his Jack Nicholson impersonation rather than actually doing any acting. So there were a few films there where Jack Nicholson was just like, okay, you know, I'm going to chew up the scenery and I'm going to do the things that you think Jack Nicholson should do and fortunately got out of that i wish i could say the same thing for al pacino but he's still doing the al pacino show Ooh, uh. <laughs> foghorn leghorn now where i say where did that bar go <laughs> anything else about hexen or witchcraft through the ages uh i if you haven't seen it before i would really recommend this one so i want to thank you rob for turning me on to this because i Really, it was one of those movies that I kind of knew about. It was kind of on the, the fringes of my brain, but I wouldn't have sat down and watched it had I not had to for the show, and I would recommend mo more people do so. All right, we're going to take a break and play preview for next week's show.
You got a really big problem here, Louis. Seems like you're directly responsible for it. What we need to do is eliminate the scumbag who whacked Frank. His killer needs to be neutralized. In the words of the ancients, matters of great concern should be treated lightly. Matters of small concern should be treated seriously. Louis, now is the time to tell us everything you know about this mysterious weirdo. Ghost dog, plowing quality. Always see everything, my brother. He calls himself Ghost Dog. What? Ghost Dog. Ghost Dog? He said Ghost Dog! That's right. Next week, we're kicking off another edition of, uh, is it November, Mike? Sure, why not? All right. So we're going international this time. Jean-Pierre Melville's Le Samurai and Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. See how these two things are connected, of course. Don't miss it. But before we run, we want to thank our special guest this week, author Robert Thurston, for taking the time to talk to us about the witch hunts in Europe and America. Of course, you can find out more about his book and the stuff that he does at projection-booth.com. Thanks again, everybody. Thanks for listening. We'll hope you'll consider going over to our website, projection-booth.com, taking the time to leave us some feedback. Go on over to our iTunes, leave us a review, donate some of your hard-earned cash to our Patreon, or just say hello. You know, you can stop by the website whenever you want. We'll be around. It's just a few more ways that you can help us take over the world. sights to see And when I look in my window So many different people to be That it's strange So strange You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up Looking over his shoulder at me, and he's strange. Sure, is strange. You got to pick up every stitch, you got to pick up every stitch. Yeah, beatniks 
when I look out my window What do you think I see And when I look in my window So many different people to be It's strange Sure is strange You got to pick up every stitch You got to pick up every stitch Do rabbits running in the ditch Oh no Must be the season of the Enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.